when Rick Scarborough was pastor of Paraland Baptist Church, he went to a school assembly one day, and what he heard greatly disturbed him. And he left that meeting saying, you know, we've got to change this. And so they began to work as a church, elected a member to the school board, got a 3-2 majority, and began to change things there. And then there was conflict between the city manager and the police chief and others. And they were elected, so they got busy as a church and elected people to those positions and literally changed the direction of that city. And then they were in Harris County, one of the largest counties in Texas. And Rick headed up and organized. And of the 52 races in Harris County, they won the victory in 51 of them. That was when he was as a pastor. But you know, at that point, God began to raise him up. And shortly after that, he called his ministry Vision America. He goes all over a nation. In the coming election in 2016, he will be in many, 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 many states organizing pastors, organizing Christians to get out and vote. Even in this past time, he had called a, a press conference. It was on a I've forgotten a news something, but anyway, and, and God just used him, and he's using him greatly now. Vision America is having a nationwide impact. Rick was on our staff for t- about two and a half years as our associate, and to see how God is using him now in a critical time in our nation is just amazing of the grace and power of God. He loves God. He is very knowledgeable. He is bold. He's courageous. He's compassionate. But let's welcome Rick Scarborough this morning as he comes to, to share with us. Well, I'll tell you, I uh, count as one of the highlights of my life those uh, all too brief uh, years on the staff, and then we continue to live here, a total of four years in all. Uh, no one has had a greater impact on my life and ministry than Fred Wolf. I've had a couple of other pastors have greatly influenced me, but no one greater than this man of God. And I'm, I will forever be indebted to the Lord for allowing our paths to cross, Brother Fred. Uh, my wife and I look forward to our occasional opportunities to stop by here more than you will ever realize. We're always refreshed. You know, I'm from Texas, and this is hard for me to admit, but I, I ate the best barbecue I've ever eaten in Alabama yesterday. And I know some of you have history with Herb Fisher are not going to believe this, but best ribs I've ever tasted. And they weren't burnt. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you, we, we enjoyed ourselves immensely. Uh, Herb and Pam have been our dear friends since those days, and as have many of you. We love you all. I want to thank the church for supporting Vision America. We, we have a core of about 15 churches that give us uh, some type of... Uh, financial assistance every month, and it really, it, it really holds the whole ministry together. We have six employees, three full-time and three part-time, scattered over four states, three states, excuse me, uh, and then during the heavy part of our, our, of our election cycles, when we're mobilizing pastors across, we'll hire a number of interns who will assist us in that work, and God has chosen to favor it. Uh, America's in a real mess right now, wouldn't you agree? I'm going to do a slide presentation. I'm looking around for the uh, clicker. Did I cover it up with mine? I sure did. 
And uh, folks, listen, a preacher with technology is a dangerous thing indeed, because I am over, I'm beyond the ninth grade, so I'm struggling with this. But uh, happy Independence Day, and thanks to all who serve. I can't think of a better way to begin this message than to ever ask every one of you who have served in some form of military, uh, if you've served your country, past or present, would you please stand and let us celebrate your service and acknowledge the contribution that you have made to our freedom. God bless you all. Thank you so much. I'm just curious if we have any World War II veterans. You know, we're losing them rapidly now. I read somewhere recently 1,500 a day are passing into eternity. That is a generation of men and women that literally cannot be replaced. Are there any World War II veterans with us today? That illustrates the point. Uh, referred to as the greatest generation, and I believe that that's an accurate portrayal. Uh, I wonder if those of our friends, relatives, and neighbors who've died on foreign fields of conflict died for what took place just last Friday a week ago, if that's what they had in mind. These are incredible days. I want to work my way through a couple of slides. I must be going the wrong way. Nothing is happening, gentlemen. Up. Let's try that. Ah, look at there. Told you don't give me something like this. We were off to a start there for a second. It wants to come back to us. Uh, that's one of them, but it's... Uh, all right, let's start there. Uh, Psalms 11.3. Repeat that with me. If the foundations be destroyed, watch shall the righteous do? Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is a, an interesting building there. The reason I put it up, that was one of 11 buildings built in Shanghai just a few years ago. Uh, they were nearing completion, had already sold most of the flats in the building you see laying on its side, but due to a faulty foundation, one day the workers came to complete their task and found that the building had fallen over and remained intact, virtually intact, as you can see. But due to a faulty foundation, it fell. The, the miracle was it didn't fall in the other direction and start a chain reaction of 11 buildings falling. You know, America was built on a solid foundation. But there's an erosion taking place. And I wonder just what a collapse of this country would mean for the rest of the world. Boy, I'll tell you what, two trains colliding on a railroad track. To illustrate the reality that there are two worldviews right now marching down the same track in opposite directions. You know, you can determine everything you need to know about another man's philosophy by asking them what they believe about the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. If you affirm that that is true, then you likely have a Christian worldview. But if you question that, it leads to a secularist viewpoint that is dangerous. There is not a single instance in history in which liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved in its entire, Reverend James Witherspoon said. Let me read you a little bit about James Witherspoon. It's important to know who we are, who we're talking about this morning. I had the privilege of authoring Enough is Enough. I spent months alone with God, 
researching our founding fathers, and I loved reading about John Witherspoon, a Presbyterian minister who was educated in Edinburgh University. Reverend Witherspoon was the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence, and he brought the principles of Lex Rex, which I discuss in the book Enough is Enough, the law and the prince. He brought the principles of Lex Rex into the formation of the Constitution. Reverend Witherspoon was a central player in preparing the Judeo-Christian foundation of our nation. In that, he was the president and chief lecturer at the College of New Jersey, which later became known as Princeton University. He touched the lives of nearly 500 graduates. 11% of them went on to become college presidents. James Madison, known as the father of the Constitution and later elected as a president, was the most notable student. Witherspoon taught a vice president, 21 senators, 39 representatives, 56 legislators, 33 judges, three of whom were elected members of the United States Supreme Court, a preacher who made an impact on his culture and laid a foundation that we have long enjoyed. The Puritans were seekers after God, and they searched the Bible not only for principles and rules, but for mandates, and when none could find these for analogies, they would look to guide, or excuse me, and when he could find none of these for analogies, to guide him in the precise arrangements of public administration and the minutest points of individual conduct. Uh, the country was built upon the Bible. Uh, some of the truths that they found as they researched the Bible are listed here that became fundamental to our nation. The fundamental principle of all men being created equal. The concept of natural law, which we want to discuss in a moment. The monogamous family unit. You can see the line. It goes all the way down to a defined and written rule of law. All of that coming from God's word. The original colonies, 13, became the original states. And they were built, as the picture illustrates, upon the inerrant and infallible word of God. Let me illustrate a little bit about that. Uh, The book of Connecticut, statute book of Connecticut, was put together by... The pilgrims uh, are are the descendants of the pilgrims, including Reverend John Davenport, who assisted Theophilus Eaton in establishing the New Haven, Connecticut Constitution and the foundation for what would become the state. That same year, the first general court met and enacted a body of laws for the colony based entirely upon the Word of God. In 1659, a committee consisting of seven, known as Seven Pillars, were appointed to enact the civil polity where God's word was established as the rule of the public affairs. The Bible became the statute book for Connecticut. Uh, Davenport obviously leading in that. Listen to some of what they had to say. For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God, by the wise disposition of his divine providence, so to order and dispose of things, that we, the inhabitants and residents of Windsor, Hartford, and Westerfield, are now cohabiting and dwelling in and upon the river Connecticut and the lands thereunto joining and well knowing where a people are gathered together, the word of God requires that to maintain peace and union of such people, there should be an orderly and decent affairs of the people and a government established according to God's laws to order and dispose of the affairs of the people at all seasons as occasions shall require. Do therefore associate and conjoin ourselves to be as one public state of commonwealth and do for ourselves and our successors and such as shall be adjoined to us at any time hereafter enter into the combination of the confederate 
confederation together to maintain and preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a foundation we have in this country. Uh, Seven state constitutions literally put the gospel in their founding documents, one of which was the state of Delaware. I want you to read uh, one of their articles in the state constitution in the original founding of Delaware. Article 22. Now listen to what it was required to run for public office. Every person who shall be chosen a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust shall also make and subscribe the following declaration to wit. I, blank, fill in the blank, do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ his only Son and in the Holy Ghost one God blessed forevermore and I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Would that our seminaries required that of their professors today. How far we have come. But beloved, Dr. Wolf is exactly correct. There can be no doubt about where and how this country was founded. Our, our proof can be read in, the, in Statuary Hall and other places in Washington, D.C., and in most of our state capitals. No question we were established by God. I'm going to come back and read a couple more uh, frames here in a moment, but let's proceed through this. The purpose of government was for the good of the people. It was ordained of God, and its purpose, like the government of Christ and God himself, was for the good of all people. Romans 13, 1 through 4, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Again, the primary purpose of government, punish evil, protect good. That we may all live a peaceable and godly life. Government is for the benefit of its seasons. Herb, would you hand me that water? I'm getting as dry as I can be. I, I uh, took a drink of cough medicine my, my doctor prescribes because I have a, a recurring cough. I jokingly refer to it as Baptist vodka because it's so strong. But, but it, uh, it does cut the cough, but it dries my mouth. So if you'll bear with me, uh, that's obviously better than having to cough so much. Tyrant or ruler? That's the question we must ask. Because we are to obey those who rule over us unless what they ask us to do is to disobey God. In fact, in Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered and said to the magistrates, we ought to obey God rather than man. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing there erect when all the others were bowed invoking Nebuchadnezzar's rage. I discussed that on a conference call. And uh, people, uh, there literally are organizations that have assigned people to follow, track, and record everything I said. So they extracted, I I kind of repeated the old uh, children's song that we sing in Vacation Bible School. We won't bow, we won't bend. But I rephrased it. I wasn't going to say we won't burn because we may. So I said, I was talking to the pastor, I said, Gentlemen, we've got to take the position we won't bow, we won't bend, but if necessary, we'll burn. 
there are probably 10,000 tweets that you can find now where homosexuals are begging me to set myself on fire and laughing at me for not doing it. We had to shut our switchboard down at the office and forward calls to my secretary's cell phone so she could screen them. That's been going on for now two weeks because of so much hate coming from my standing on a principled position on the matter of marriage. Am I afraid? Nah. You know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do I don't want somebody to set me on fire? Not in the least, unless it's Holy Spirit. Blackstone's commentaries. Let me back up and give you a, a, a brief look at Bla- uh, Mr. Blackstone. No one influenced this nation more than this jurist who wrote the law books that guided uh, both England and then the American colonies through his writings. Uh, Blackstone's commentary is the laws of England. The work is divided into four volumes. One on the rights of persons, another on the rights of things, private wrongs, and public wrongs, all based upon God's infallible word. The commentaries played a major role in the development of the American legal system taught in our law schools until 100 years ago to every law student based, as I said, on God's word. Look at what he says. The will of his maker is called the law of nature. The doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. No human laws should be, off, should be suffered allowed to contradict these revealed natural laws. Uh, we seem to have a break in the clicks. We may jump four or five now. July the 4th, 1776. 56 men with much to lose, wealthy leaders who didn't need more problems. But they gathered and, and, and signed the Declaration of Independence, in effect signing their own death warrant. If we had time, we could track the sufferings of these men and their families in the years that followed. But here they are gathered, standing on principles uh, that were taught to them uh, through the writings of, of uh William Blackstone and others who taught those things. Look at what they said in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are what? Created and equal. And they are endowed by their who? Creator. With certain inalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you study the writings of John Locke and other thinkers of that day, they understood the pursuit of happiness to be the right to own private property, which England would not afford them unless they were aristocrats. They stood on that and said, God revealed this to us. Human law must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of that law which is divine. James Wilson, signer of the Constitution and a U.S. Supreme Court justice. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, he was known as the as the uh, arbiter of the Constitution, uh, excuse me, the ratifier of the Constitution. He said this, of the Constitution, for my own part, I sincerely esteem it, a system which without the finger of God could could not have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interest. He went on to write, natural liberty is a gift of the beneficent, beneficent, Creator to the whole human race, and that civil liberty is founded in that, and it cannot be wrestled 
from any people without the most manifest violation of justice. Now think about that in light of what's happening today. He said, natural liberty is the gift of a gracious creator. And if wrestled away, it's not easily recovered and likely not not recovered in that generation if allowed to stand long. The foundation upon which America was built was the laws of nature and nature's God, a biblical worldview. I want you to read what is in in orange, if you will. No one has a right to do wrong. Remember that. No one has a right to do wrong. John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. You'll notice he has a clerical robe on. The picture shows him taking that robe off and exposing that he has on a Continental Army uniform. He was the son of the founder of the Lutheran Church in America. He pastored a great church in that day. He stood before them and he preached out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I write about that and enough is enough. He said simply, there comes a, there's a time of peace and a time for war. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, the time of war is here. He ripped off that clerical robe. And 200 of his men marched out the back door and joined General George Washington. He was given a commission as a colonel. By the end of the war, he was a major general. He went on to serve in the U.S. Senate, serving his country until he died. Now, interestingly enough, his, his brother, Frederick Muhlenberg, when he heard what his brother had done, wrote a scathing letter and said, How dare you? You're a preacher. What do you mean leading your men off to war? But when the redcoats came to the city of New York and burned down his church building, he took what was left and marched off to join his brother. Frederick went on to serve with distinction in the military and became the first speaker of the house. Two sons of of the founder of the Lutheran church and two great pastors who understood their role as men of God to be citizens as well as Christians. Folks, we have a dual citizenship. We're in a mess today because we don't seem to understand that. Listen to the words of Peter Oliver, who was a a loyalist. He was also the chief justice of the colony of Massachusetts. He said, the black regiment have unceasingly sounded the yell of rebellion in the ears of an ignorant and deluded people. You know what he said? He said, the problem in America, we're going to have an uprising because of the preachers. These sermons dealt with matters of government. Copies were widely distributed where they became textbooks of politics cited in the New England clergy in the American Revolution by Alice Baldwin. Here's an example of a sermon preached to the sitting legislature, the governors and all, in the state of Massachusetts by Jonathan Mayhew. He said, the king in his coronation oath swears to exercise only such a power as the Constitution gives him, and the citizen in the oath of allegiance swears only to obey in the exercise of such a power. Jonathan Mayhew is one of the leading clerics in the New World. Uh, Here's uh, someone I trust that you all recognize, probably don't, rather old preacher. Known for revival, Charles Finney, cited as being responsible in initiating the Second Great Awakening that threw off the cloak of slavery. God used him to see 
Tens of thousands of people give their heart to Christ. But listen to what he preached in one of his sermons. Brethren, our preacher will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. He went on to say, now every time you see the lighter color or the darker color come up, I want you to say that. This is going to be an audience response time. I'll say what's in white. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it, Charles Finney said. He said, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. We're not clicking. That's why I wanted to run through it at least once. Oh, there's a lot more to that. Let's see this one. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, say it, the pulpit is responsible for it. Now listen carefully and say your part. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Folks, people you know, accuse me of having left the ministry. But what God bore in my heart as pastor of that church, in just seeing the church do what they were called to do. Now, folks, what's never told is while we were so involved in changing first the school board, then the city council, then Harris County. Now, folks, it needs a lot of work again, and I'm working with pastors down there now. But we're talking about 20 years ago. When all of that happened, you know what our church was doing? We baptized 2,000 people in 12 years. We can chew gum and walk at the same time, church. All politics takes is an informed pastor and people willing to vote twice every election cycle. In the primary and in the general election, we lose our best candidates because we don't show up in primaries. We wind up picking the lesser of two evils, and I'm sick of that. Newsweek magazine, May of this year, the first gay president. Celebrating that which God forbids, the new America, according to five unelected judges. More accurately called by John Roberts in his scathing dissent, five lawyers. First time in judicial history that a sitting justice referred to his colleagues not as, a, as justices, but as a lawyer. There's your new Department of Education logo. Rainbow flag now flies over our foreign embassies every June celebrating gay pride. What do you think that does in the Arab world? What do you think, how do you think recruiting went the day after the president splashed? Let me back up. In the morning he sang Amazing Grace. That afternoon he turned on the lights and the White House was in rainbow colors. I mean, how did that affect ISIS recruiting, do you think? When we're known already as the great Satan, they celebrated in Saudi Arabia by throwing five homosexuals off the top of a building. I'm not advocating that. I'm advocating righteousness in our leadership. Jonathan and Elaine Huguenin, owners of Elaine Photography, people say, well, hey, it's no big deal. You know, it's like abortion. We'll just fight it. Folks, it's not like abortion. Abortion has an opt-out clause. Yes, it's legal. 58 million babies are dead. We've been marching now for 20, 30 years. We celebrate little victories 
But you and I can opt not to do it. Not so with this ruling. Even the Solicitor General, when asked by Scalia, won't this affect and impact churches' non-exempt status? What about colleges and schools and soup kitchens and, and save-a-life ministries? To which the Solicitor General on three occasions said, yes, that's going to be a problem. Yes, that will be an issue. You bet it's going to be an issue. Ask Jonathan and Elaine Huguenin where in New Mexico a federal judge ordered them, ordered the state to comply with same-sex marriage, legitimacy. They were sued for refusing to photograph same-sex weddings. New Mexico's Supreme Court said that, the, that forcing the photographer and her family to violate their deeply held religious beliefs was, read it, the price of citizenship. Lieutenant Commander Wesley Motter. Navy threatens to end the 19-year career of this highly decorated chaplain who served as a Navy SEAL in SEAL Team 6. Chaplain West was called just a few weeks or months ago the best of the best till they discovered he was preaching the theology of his denomination on sexual sin. All sexual sin. He told a young lady having multiple partners in heterosexual sex that that was sin. She needed to repent. He certainly preached homosexuality as a sin. And for that, he's going to lose his career if you and I don't intervene. Just short of his pension. Franklin Graham had an interesting thing to say on the national media regarding the rainbow. God sent a flood to wipe out an entire world because mankind had become so wicked and violent. So when we see the gay pride rainbow, may it remind us all of God's judgment to come. Are you ready? Are your sins forgiven? He asked. You know, the Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Isn't it ironic, the symbol they've chosen was a symbol of God's judgment? Here's the proof. Homosexuals can change. By the way, in two states already, one signed into law by a Democrat, the other signed into law by a Republican, who's now running for president, I might add. In California and New Jersey, if you're a licensed professional counselor, it is illegal for you to tell a struggling homosexual that they can change. It's called reparative therapy. Been declared illegal. Now that same-sex marriage is the law of the land, you licensed professionals, and eventually we preachers, if this is allowed to stand, are going to be forced to shut the gospel off and dare tell a homosexual they can change. But you know, their problem, and it's pretty massive because there's tens of thousands of these Dennis Jernigans, having been walking in freedom from his former homosexual identity since November the 7th, 1981, Jernigan, who writes many of the songs we sing in church, takes great joy in sharing the grace and love of God to any who desire freedom in their own personal life. Homosexuals can meet Jesus and have their lives changed. Joshua 25, 24, 15. 
I want you to think about that. We're going to talk about it here in a moment. I'm holding in my hand a copy of the Supreme Court decision. And I'm holding in my hand the Bible. Let me read you a little bit from this court. Uh, these are John Roberts' dissent. This is from John Roberts' dissents, dissent. But a justice's commission does not confer any special moral, philosophical, or social insight sufficient to justify imposing those perceptions on fellow citizens under the, quote, pretense of due process. Continuing the quote. The purpose of insisting that implied fundamental rights have roots in the history and tradition of our people is to ensure that when unelected judges strike down democratically elected laws, they do so based on something more than their own belief. The court today not only overlooks our country's entire history and tradition, but actively repudiates it, referring to live only in the heady days of the here and now. By the way, the swing vote, Anthony Kennedy, in 1992, I believe was the year, don't hold me to that, but I believe that's accurate, in Casey versus Planned Parenthood, they reviewed Roe v. Wade. Sandra Day O'Connor in her memoirs has made us aware and gives insight into the discussions. Uh, she talks about how that they had arrived at the decision that Roe v. Wade was bad law. But she said, you know, if we, over, if we overrule ourselves and overturn a decision we made, it's going to make the court look bad. And the only power we have is the respect given to us by the people. They'd already determined five to four with Anthony Kennedy voting to overturn that law to reverse, and they rewrote their opinions. Suddenly they said, we're going to sustain it, and we're going to allow Planned Parenthood to win the case. And here's what he wrote in his, I'm going I'm to paraphrase, it will be very close to an exact quote. He said, in justifying his switch, he said, Every generation has a duty to define its own reality. Now think about that. Every generation has a duty to define its own reality. In other words, that may have been true yesterday, but it's not true today. We call that situation ethics. Fast forward to, 19, to excuse me, 2000, and I believe it was eight. Remember when President Obama said his Justice Department wouldn't defend the DOMA laws? And so it went to the Supreme Court, and the Defense of Marriage Act passed by previous generations, giving the states the right to determine their own direction regarding state amendments to the Constitution. They overturned it five and four. And they said, we, the federal government has no say in what states decide this is a state's issue. We should have never passed DOMA. They declared it unconstitutional. The same five judges then came to this case, and they said in Ogreville, they said, the states don't have a right to define marriage. That's our duty. But remember now, this is the thinking of a judge who told you back in 1992 by the way, he was the replacement for Bork, who got Borked. What a different world we would have, right? 
This justice told us back in 1992 that he was a relativist. His worldview is that I can decide for myself what the reality is. And so it's exactly different today than it was just a few years ago when we ruled on this uh, a case regarding state rights. Then the federal government couldn't tell states what to do. Now they're going to tell the states what to do. And so, in the dissent, which is scathing, over and over again, John Roberts takes him to task. But I want to read, because I want to, I want to turn this service back to, to our pastor, I want to read this. The legitimacy of this court ultimately rests upon respect according to its judgments. He's citing, by the way, a Supreme Court case. That's Roberts speaking in the dissent. That respect flows from the perception and reality that we exercise humility and restraint in deciding cases according to the Constitution and the law. The role of the court envisioned by the majority today, however, is anything but humble and restrained. Over and over, the majority exalts the role of the judiciary in delivering social change. In the majority's telling, it's the courts, not the people, who are responsible for making, quote, new dimensions of freedom apparent to a new generation's, end of quote, for providing formal discourse on social issues and for ensuring, quote, neutral discussions without scornful or disparaging commentary. Nowhere is the majority's extravagant conception of judicial supremacy more evident than in its description and dismissal of the public debate regarding same-sex marriage. Yea, the majority concedes on one side are a thousand years of human history and every society known to have populated the planet but on the other side, there's been, quote, extensive litigation, end of quote, many thoughtful district court decisions, quote, countless studies, papers and books, and more popular and scholarly writings, and more than 100 amicus briefs in such cases, which what would be the point of allowing the democratic process to go on? It is high time for the court to decide the meaning of marriage. He's quoting, by the way, uh, the, the majority's opinion. He said, now here's what he said. Based on five lawyers' better informed understanding of liberty that remains urgent in our era, the answer surely is there is one of those the answer is surely in at least one amicus brief. Those who founded our country would not recognize the majority's conception of judicial role. They, after all, risked their lives and their fortunes for the precious right to govern themselves. They would never have imagined yielding that right on a question of social policy to unaccountable and unelected judges. And they certainly would not have been satisfied by a system empowering judges to override policy judgments so long as they do so after quite extensive discussions. Read the last paragraph of his dissent. There's pages of it. But the last page is perhaps the most important. This is what he concludes his remarks by saying. If you're one of the many Americans of whatever sexual orientation who favor expanding same-sex marriage, by all means, celebrate today's decision. Celebrate the achievement of a desired goal. Celebrate the opportunity for a new expression of commitment to a partner. Celebrate the availability of new benefits. But do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. I respectfully dissent. Now, folks, I know that was lengthy, and I don't like to read sermons and read material like that. But we're dealing with something that is, has altered, could alter the course of American history. You know, there comes a time, not often, 
But there are times in history when a man has to choose. I've asked 100,000 pastors along with colleagues, Matt Staver and a few others who use their list to do this. We've asked pastors all over America to take a stand today. In this hand is a court decision written by five unele- or nine unelected justices, five of which, five lawyers, who just said God was wrong when he defined marriage. They said, yes, you Christians believe that marriage is not only an institution designed by God in which two people committed to one another in holy matrimony engage in a, in a procreation extending one generation to the next and in so doing show the world the spiritual meaning of Christ and the church. That's all false. We see light in a different way. Comes a time when men have to choose who they're going to obey and what's going to be the authority of their life. Well, I've made my choice. I'm not going to obey that. I'm going with this. And if it seem evil unto you, serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. God bless you, my friend. Thank you, Brother Rick, for making us aware of what injustice has occurred. I just want to take a few moments and, um, of course, we're all saying the same thing. What can I do? Is there anything I can do? Of course, there are many things that we can do, and I believe that the body of Christ will do them in days to come. Yeah, we have failed in the past, while the, the, the liberal media and those who had their own moral agenda were loud and commanding, even though they are small in number. The church just seemed to be quiet, silent, going on its own way. That's over. That is over. We realize now it's a life and death battle, and we will fight in love, but we will fight. I want to share with you what you can do. And I've got a word that will encourage you. I'm not going to take long. You say, I've heard that before. But I'm not. I'm really not. I don't, it's not going to take me long to tell you this. First thing I want to do is to encourage you. And then I want to take just a moment or two to tell you what you can do. You know, do you realize, we say it all the time, that uh, the only hope that we have is that as a nation, we will turn back to God. Not just a God, but the God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible on which this nation was founded. So we keep saying that our only hope is in God. But then, then we look around and see the condition of our nation. It seems instead of getting brighter, it's been getting darker. Instead of going in the right direction, we've gone in the wrong direction. We all thought that was change at 9-11. It did not change. And so here we arrive at this place 
where we, they have, quote, unquote, redefined marriage, defied the word of God, and pretty much rebelled against God when they put the rainbow colors on the White House. But did you know God always works in dark times? I want you to hear me. God does his greatest work when there's darkness. God does his greatest work when his people wake up and get desperate. Do you realize that that from 1857 to 1859, two years before the Civil War began, the Civil War was from April in 1961 to 1965, April of 1965, Two years before the outbreak of the Civil War, that there was the fourth great awakening that swept across this nation. And when you hear what, what happened in those days, you'd say, my, that sounds impossible. With man, it is impossible. With God, it's not impossible. You see, what happened, there was a man named Jeremiah Lampier, and he was appointed an assistant pastor of the Dutch Reformed Church in New York. And he decided to call a prayer meeting. So he went uh, around to the businesses and the people uh, in the area where he worked in Manhattan and put out flyers and said that there was going to be a prayer meeting on September the 23rd, 1957. And so he put them out. And so he went at the noon hour to the place of prayer on September 23rd, 1957. For 30 minutes, he was just him. He prayed alone. But within the last 30 minutes of that hour, six other men came in from four different denominations, and they prayed. So they said, well, let's gather again uh, the next week. Within a, within a week, there was 100 people that were gathering to pray. Within a week, there were 100 that get, were gathering to pray. But soon, it began to spread all over uh, Manhattan and all over New York. By the end of March, now get this, the first prayer meeting was in September with six people. Now, prayer meetings are beginning to spring up all over New York and all over the East Coast. And by the end of March, listen to this, over 6,000 people met daily in prayer meetings in New York, from six to 6,000 in about four or five months. Many churches added evening services. There were 150 united prayer meetings going on, going on all over uh, that area. But now let me tell you the next thing that happened. So God began to move. And then we find out that almost sim simultaneously, now listen to this. See, God, when God moves, there's no explanation but God. There was no organization, no plan. God just moved in. And what happened was, almost unanimously, simultaneously, prayer meetings sprang up in Boston, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Richmond, Charleston, Savannah, Mobile, New Orleans, Vicksburg, Memphis, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Chicago. Prayer meetings began to spring up in every one of those cities. And the writer here says America had entered a new period of faith and prayer. Educated and uneducated, rich and poor, business leaders and common workmen all prayed, believed, and received answers to prayer. Even the President of the United States, Franklin Pierce, attended many of the noon prayer meetings. This was not a pr revival of powerful preaching. 
This was a movement of earnest, powerful praying. It says here that, that after one year, now listen to this. After one year, they reported that 96,216 people were saved after the first year. Well, and then he goes on and says, God's glory over the land and sea. How that God's presence, like a canopy, came over our nation. From 1857 to 59, all right, for six to eight weeks, when the revival was at its peak, at the height of the revival, now listen to this, 50,000 people were converted every week. Now think about that. 50,000 people were converted every week. The average for the two years, now listen to this, 10,000 converts were added to the church every week. And a nation of 30 million people at that time, during those two years, 2 million people gave their life to Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, come on, this was a dark day. The Civil War was fixing to break out. Hostility was great. But the Spirit of God, like a canopy, covered this land. And people, and, and, and they just go, and, and this is what they do. They'd meet to pray. And there was no preaching. All right? So this was the rules. You stand up. You got five minutes to make your prayer request and five minutes to pray. When your five minutes was up, they rang a bell. Now, I'm glad y'all not going to ring a bell, but they rang a bell. <laughs> then the next person. But God just moved. In fact, it got so heavy that it, that it spread 150 miles off the coast. A ship came within the 150-mile zone, and the people on the ship got under conviction, and the people on the ship started getting saved. And as they moved into the harbor, the, 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 guy, the captain of the ship sent a message and said, Send a minister. There was another ship that was, that was coming in, and they, in 150 miles, everybody on the ship was converted before they got to land. Now, this is what I love about it. It says there was a canopy, a can, same like a canopy of the presence and power of God that overstood that nation. And think about it. Right before the worst war that we ever had, over 2 million people came into the kingdom of God. So that says to me, when I look at America, and it's dark, and when I look at America, and it's going in the wrong direction, but I do believe that if God's people will be God's people, and if the pulpits will not be silent, that we can see a great awakening in the days to come. And by the way, that's our only hope, y'all. That is our only hope. There are two things that are going to have to happen that you've got to do. Two things that I've got to do. The key to revival, the key to the coming of the presence of God is humility and brokenness. That is so clear in the word of God. If God is going to come and visit this country and the fear of God is going to come back to this nation and people are going to start flaunting, stop flaunting themselves in the face of God and God in his grace and mercy is going to come in power on this nation there's got to be humility, and there's got to be brokenness. It's very clear in the Bible. Isaiah 57, 15. I want you to look at these, listen to these words now. This tells you revive means life again, life again. And notice what he says is the key to God reviving his church. It says in Isaiah 57, 15, 
For thus saith the high and lofty one. What a picture of God. What saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy? I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. God said, I'm high and I'm holy, and I'm dwelling with people who have a contrite and a humble spirit. Why? Listen to it. To revive the spirit of the humble. He said, I will revive humble people. And to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And so the key for God to visit us and for the fear of God to be restored to this nation and for the presence of God to come like a canopy over our land and for the body of Christ, regardless of denominational tag, for the body of Christ to come alive and be bold and be courageous and speak the truth in love. For that to happen, there's got to be humility in our, on our parts and there's got to be brokenness. You say, Brother Fred, is there a pattern? Oh, yeah. There's a pattern of humility and brokenness. When David had greatly sinned against God, you read Psalm 51. He spends the whole psalm repenting and telling God that he'd sinned against him. And any time you feel like you really need to get alone with God and let God speak to your heart, get in Psalm 51 and let him search your heart. But David had been praying and asking God to forgive him and clean him, create him in a clean heart. But then he said this. He says in Psalm 51, 15, 16, you do not desire sacrifice, Lord. You don't want me to bring a sacrifice or else I'd bring one. You do not delight in burnt offering or else I would give one. Now listen at this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The key to the presence of God and the movement of the Spirit of God in our land is humility and brokenness. All right, let me, let me talk to you about humility. It, it's simply this. Humility is the admission. It is just simply the admission that um, uh, we, we're not capable of solving the problem. You see, revival is when um, God comes in awesome holiness and irresistible power. I want you to think about that. When God comes in awesome holiness and fills the place or covers a city or covers a nation, like it happened in 1850, 1857 to 59, two million people saved in, in, in over two years. When God comes in awesome holiness and irresistible power, you know, we got to realize that the key to God coming is humility. And let me tell you, I'm just going to tell you two things that involves. First of all, we have to admit that we're a desperately needy people. You know, I, you know, this is the greatest nation in the world. You see, let me tell you about freedom. Freedom's dangerous because there's freedom not only to do right, there's freedom to do wrong as long as you do not break a law. In other countries where there's Shiite law and all that kind of stuff, Sahara law and that stuff, you, you're not free to do evil, they'll cut your head off. You steal, they'll cut your hand off. You commit adultery, they'll stone you to death. Oh, yeah, 
You say, well, they're so moral over there in those Muslim countries. You know why? They'll kill you. That's exactly what they'll do. But you see, in America, hey, you have the freedom. As long as you don't break the law, you can do right, but you also have the freedom to do wrong. You answer to God, but it's still freedom. Freedom is not freedom unless it's freedom. So we got to realize, we've got to confess to God that we are a desperately needy people. Desperately needy. That we need God. Let me tell you something. America is not self-sufficient. You know that, don't you? We desperately need God. By the way, you're not self-sufficient. And you're not independent. Humility is the understanding in your heart how desperately you need God. How desperately you need Jesus Christ in your life. You've got to be desperate. And humility is, God, we desperately need you. In this nation, we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your presence. We need your power. We need for you to come and make your church alive with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We have to admit to God that we are a desperately needy people. And I want to say this to you. You have to realize how desperately needy you are. Nobody in this room has got it all together. Every one of us, God can take us to another level spiritually. If you're satisfied with where you are spiritually, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. The Christian life is not stagnant. The Christian life is ever-growing and ever-increasing. A deeper love for God, a deeper love for Jesus, a desire for a a more holy life. And so humility is we we recognize that we are a desperately needy people. But also, it's another thing. We have to realize that we can't meet our own needs. You know, we're so smart in America, we can solve our own problems. Give me a break. It's a colossal failure. I mean, if it's not a riot in Baltimore, and if there's not one in Chicago, and if there's not... The point I'm saying to you is, We've tried everything, you know, if we just elect the right people and we need to elect righteous and godly people. And it angers me when Rick says we don't vote and the reason we don't vote, our people don't get elected who love God. Then, buddy, that's our responsibility. That's got to change. Amen? That's got to change. But we got to realize that we cannot do it in the arm of the flesh. It, with man, it is not possible. We've got to humble ourselves, and our confidence has got to be in God. Now, Lord, it's too, it's too broken. It's too big. But you came, and you visited your people before. Will you come again? Will you come again? And by your presence, bring conviction of sin. Will you come again, O God? And by your presence, turn men and women's hearts toward you. Would you come again and make the church not just longer a place where people gather for an hour, but an army and a body of believers that is filled with the power and the glory of God? We've got to not only admit our need, but we've got to believe that only God can meet our needs. And he can. He is our only hope, y'all. But if we turn to him, he'll raise up strong and righteous leaders. He'll, if, if we'll just humble ourselves and say, God, we've messed up. But now, Lord, we know that you're the only one that can rescue us from this situation we're in. And the only way is for there to be a movement of God that turns this nation back to God. But you know, there's not only got to be humility. 
there's got to be a broken and a contrite heart. Isaiah 57, 15, I revive the heart of the contrite one. Psalm 51, 16 and 17, God, you don't desire sacrifice. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You say, Brother Fred, what is a contrite heart? It is a heart that is broken over its own sin. You know, we all have one thing in common. We are sinners. There are two kinds of sinners. They're saved sinners and they're lost sinners. But saved sinners don't live like lost sinners anymore. They're a new creation in Christ. But I love what Jesus did when he told those people, the woman caught in the act of adultery, let one of you, each of you that without sin throw the first stone. But you know, here's the difference between a saved person and a lost person. Yes, we are all sinners, but we've been forgiven of our sin. Two, no longer do we run after sin. Now we run after righteousness and holiness. We've had repentance. We've turned away from our sin and we've turned toward God. You see, so it's not that we, none of us have never sinned, but we are forgiven. And now by God's presence, we live a righteous life a godly life, a holy life, a life that pursues God. We're dead to sin and we're alive unto God. But we've got to realize our constant need for forgiveness and our constant need from a touch from God. So a contrite heart is one. All right, let, let me give you the perfect example of a contrite heart. Matthew 5, 3 and 4. I want you to listen to these two verses. It says, Blessed Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? Blessed are those that know their need. Do you know how needy you are? Do you know how needy I am? How much we need the mercy of God? How much we need the grace of God? How much we need the blood of Christ? How much we need the word of God? How much we need to be united as one in Jesus Christ? Do you realize how desperately needy we are? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know their need. But look at the next verse. You know your need. And then it says, blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that mourn. For they shall be comforted. You know, God searches our hearts. I love that verse in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It, listen to what the psalmist prayed. Well, this is a good thing for us just to, to realize. It says, search me, O God. Are you willing to ask God to do this for you? Are you willing to walk before him in humility and with contrite heart, admitting your need and that only God can meet it? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lord, see, reveal to me any wicked way in me. And then, Lord, you lead me in the way everlasting. I guarantee you, each one of us, we need to admit to God how desperately needy we are. This church needs to tell, admit to God how desperately needed we are. We have to confess before God that we're not trusting in buildings. We're not trusting in money. We're not trusting in men. We're not trusting in personalities. We're not trusting in programs. Our only trust is in the living God.